This is an ABC podcast. Hilary Harper here. Great to be with you today. We all know that big stresses can affect our mood and our health and our relationships. But if you're feeling run down or overwhelmed just by your daily life, when there's no one big thing going wrong, you might wonder what's going on. On Life Matters today from Nam, Melbourne, the theory that lots of smaller irritants can build up and make one giant straw that breaks our backs. Micro stresses, how big a problem they are and what can be done about them. An after-hours email, a deadline brought forward, a cancelled catch-up with a friend. On their own, they're all manageable, but put them together and they can push us over the edge. How can we minimise what experts are calling micro-stresses? I would love to hear what methods you've found to cope with these tiny swarms of irritants in your life, short of retirement, basically, short of just stepping outside your life. What are the strategies you've used within the structures that you have control over to deal with those lots of tiny annoyances that can really add up? Rob Cross is the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College. His research looks at how to improve the way people work and he co-authored a book called The Micro-Stress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems and What to Do About It. It's very comprehensive. The co-authors Karen Dillon, Rob Cross, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you so much for having me here. It's great to be here. Well, it's fascinating to hear that you you never set out to write this particular book. How did you come upon this idea of micro-stress and why did it become so compelling to you? Yeah, great question. So I run a consortium of companies called The Connected Commons that is very focused on looking at relationships and collaboration and connectivity analytically uh, in organizations. And we've been doing a ton of work on assessing how high performers were distinguishing themselves today. And I was lucky enough that a lot of the consortium members were saying, we really would also like to understand just well-being, you know, people that are happier in their in their lives and what they're doing as a, a second condition of success, you know, performance and well-being. And so, you know, diving into the work, what you find is that the quality of our connections have really dropped, you know, over the past 10, 15 years, certainly through COVID. In fact, as much as 30% of the population is, is clinically in a category of loneliness. And that uh, is a bigger issue than you might think. We know that when you fall into that category, the, uh, the effective is, you know, of, of likelihood of dying is the same as 15 cigarettes a day, right? Or 26% greater, uh, you know, likelihood of dying early. It's got, it's got a tremendous number of health risks to it. And yet on a positive side, having those connections in your life um, have really positive, you know, repercussions as well. Yet what we were finding is that most of the advice coming forth from all the studies was saying, um, you need to go have two best friends, right? And that's really difficult to do. It takes 200 hours to move from a casual acquaintance to a best friend. And so what we were doing was 600 interviews that really honed in on what's the positive effect of relationships in your life as it you know impacts physical health, growth, purpose, and resilience. And we kind of stumbled onto the micro stress idea because everybody we talked to, and we only got super successful people, but every person we spoke with uh, hit stretches in their lives of three, five, eight years where they just kind of woke up one day and said, how have I lost that time? You know, feeling like I've been in a frenzy, but I've somehow uh, lost that time. I'm not who I meant to be. And it was never one big thing. 
You know, it was this accumulation of the small that was consistently catching really smart, motivated people. And that led us down a path to really using these interviews to, to better understand that and how it was happening to people. Tell, tell me more about these tiny little things, because I guess there might be some confusion for people listening to Life Matters about what they look like. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, it, it can take the form of you know, sensing misalignment with a colleague in a meeting, right? And recognizing that somehow you've got to figure that out before the project goes off rails, right? And, and wondering how you're going to do that and where you're going to find the time to uh, get things back on track. And then one minute later, you're in another call and you see a team member that needs to be coached for the third time. And you're wondering, how am I going to do that and keep their engagement? And literally 30 seconds later, you know, in comes a text from a child <laughs> and you can't tell, you know, they're grumping about something. You can't tell if it's serious or they're over it in 10 seconds, you worry about it in the back of your mind for three hours, right? So it's that pace that's happening. Every single one of these for successful people, people that are used to overcoming, these are not big deals. Uh, and they don't invoke the fight or flight response, right? That kind of triggers our, our awareness of them, but our bodies absorb them through the day like we absorb normal stress. And we end up in this situation where you your head hits the pillow each night and you're exhausted, but you can't quite put a finger on what happened anymore because it's the velocity and volume of small moments based on how we're so hyper-connected today. Okay, so if, if they were bigger stresses and our body could go into that fight or flight response, then are you saying that we would uh, give ourselves some time to recuperate and our bodies would be forced to have downtime, but because we're absorbing them, we're just at this constant state of medium stress? Right. And every single one is doable. You know, <laughs> none of these are, are catastrophic, but our body is absorbing it uh, in the same way as big stress, in a sense. And so one of the studies that my co-author really dove into was showing as just one example that if you uh, eat a meal, uh, within two hours of being under this form of social stress, you metabolize that meal by adding 104 calories to it. You actually are processing your food differently. Uh, there's all sorts of other implications in terms of blood pressure, uh, heart rate, other things like that. But the problem is none of these are kicking us into that moment where we see this is a threat. Right. This is a big deal. I need to do something about it. And so we just persist and they slowly start to accumulate and build on us in ways that you actually can do a lot about, but we don't really recognize it uh, that well when it's happening. If this is ringing a bell, Rob Cross, with some of our listeners on the text line, Angela in Lilydale in Victoria says, yuck, nuts, N-U-T-S, never unfinished tasks. Thus, I accepted mm. to do less and good enough, not perfection in my bucket list. Mm. That's one way of mm. coping with things. Love to hear you your, uh, your um, uh, alternatives to letting these micro-stresses build up. Rob uh, has written a book, co-written a book with Karen Dillon called The Micro-Stress Effect. I'd like to bring in too now Dr. Amanda Ferguson. She's an organisational psychologist. Amanda, how widely accepted is this idea of micro-stress in psychological or mental health circles? Oh, psychological stress is a major issue. Um, and but the increased. little ones, as opposed to, you know, the big ones, I guess we're more familiar with. Well, I think this is a lovely new concept. It brings a fresh approach and it's very understandable. I think most people will grasp it and find it extremely helpful because it is a constant in our lives and certainly we as organisational psychologists call the current times we live in volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. So there's that background that we still live with as well as these micro-stresses. That's a really interesting one, isn't it? Volatile, uncertain, was, what was it? Constant and ambiguous? Yes, VUCA times, volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. So that extra stress is always sitting in the background for all of us.
Yeah, I think a lot of people are thinking this is me, this is my life and wondering where it comes from. Amanda, the way Rob describes it in the book, it sounds so pervasive. It's familiar to so many people. Is there something about our whole modern culture in Western industrialised countries in particular that that makes micro-stress more likely? Well, this was increasing before COVID. And of course, with COVID, that uh, absolute uncertainty that hit us all and the extra... um, stresses that we had to deal with. So we know life has been rapidly increasing. The pace of change has been rapidly increasing, pace of uncertainty. Um, And as Rob said, you know, we're being thrown all these constant um, uh, imperatives um, in our daily lives, in our workplace, stress is increasing, um, IT, technological changes, things we have to keep up with, um, as well as normal life. Yes, it's the the, uh, the definition of normal life, I think, that's worrying mm-hmm. a lot of people. Yes. Amanda, the state of the global workplace poll found that last year was the peak year for employee stress, worse than 2020. What do you think is driving that? Well, I guess the demands on individuals, the demands on corporations, we know burnout is now listed as a World Health Organisational um, workplace occupational phenomenon. So for that to be listed in 2019 shows us the result of stress increasing for all of us. Yes, indeed. Rob Cross, why do you think micro-stress is so prevalent in the workplace right now? I think there's two broad trends that have happened. So the consulting firms have washed through every organization and really pushed them to become more network centric, right? We've, we've been through all these things of delayering agile talent marketplaces that could go on. All these things that have meant to flatten hierarchies and create more nimble organizations. Uh, simultaneously, we have all the technologies that have come through and put us, you know, constantly in contact with each other. And it's just created the opportunity for stress to come at us in this form in a very different way. And I I would highlight uh, one important thing about what we were looking at is these micro stress moments, they're coming at us through people, right? It's not disassociated stress of the, the war in the Ukraine or social justice issue, all that matters, right? But these are small moments that are hitting us from other people. And if I'm irritated with somebody, I actually spike a little bit more, right? Because I'm just tired of that person and what they're doing. But alternatively, if I love somebody, Right. Uh, And I'm worried about them. I'm spiked just as much. Right. And so the interesting thing with this is it's number one, coming through relationships that are, you know, hyper abundant in our world, professionally and personally now, um, and that are actually coming a lot of times from people we love and care about. My biggest source of purpose in my life, or one of my biggest, is my beautiful young daughter, 22 year old woman, fantastically successful, pride of my life. My biggest micro stress in my life is my beautiful young daughter, (laughs) beautiful woman, uh, constantly has stuff that has me thinking about and worrying about for not fight or flight stuff, right? But in the back of the mind and you pile on 20, 30, 40 of those in a day and it's just different. Right, it's it's a product of how we're so hyperconnected. Well, and I mean, it, it's very familiar to a lot of people that micro stresses can happen not just in the workplace, but in all aspects of our lives. If we're talking about negative in- interactions and feelings of burden and responsibility, and uh, you know, sudden changes to our responsibilities or or right. uh, things like that, Rob, how do you know if you're causing micro stresses for someone <laughs> else? 
because that's an important part of the equation, isn't it? It's a, it's a huge piece, right? So if you're listening, you know, what we always suggest uh, is there's 14 of these micro stresses. We actually put a, an app up on the Apple store. That's a micro stress effect app. You can download it for free and whip through it very quickly. But to really think about these in three ways, you know, one is go through that list of the stressors and then think about the sources of them. There's a table that we use and isolate out two or three that are affecting you that are systemic enough that you should do something about it. Right. And so those really matters because, um, you know, we know the negative interactions in our lives have three to five times the impact of the positive. So if we're just doing things like meditation, mindfulness, all that is great stuff. I don't want to undercut that at all. But if we're not complementing that by shifting the interactions that are creating stress on us, we're actually leaving really high leverage stuff on the table to, to get better. And then to your point, the second pass, I always ask people to do when they go through that table, is do it one more time and say, where are you unnecessarily causing stress? Uh, for others. You know, you've gotten down in the weeds with a colleague, right, on something at work, or you just have pushed your child one step too far over something that in the scope of things just doesn't matter, right? But you're down in the in the minutiae again. And what I learned very, very clearly through all those interviews is the stress that we create unnecessarily, it inevitably boomerangs back on us in a different form, right? So you push an employee one step too hard because you're under pressure. They start disengaging. You get less creative output from them over time. You can't see it, but it's starting to cause you more work, you push your child one step too far and you've got a belligerent child, right? Or potentially distancing. Uh, and so really to your point, thinking about what you're causing is just as important as how to adapt the context around you because it does boomerang back in different forms. We're talking with Rob Cross, who's co-written a book called The Micro Stress Effect about these tiny little stressors that, that add up and affect us really hugely in all uh, areas of our life. And as you've heard, they can affect other people too and ripple backwards and forwards, come back and bite us if we're putting it out. And our other guest today is Dr. Amanda Ferguson, who is an organisational psychologist. Very interested to hear some texts coming in too uh, on this and people engaging with this discussion, Rob and Amanda. Elizabeth from Albury says, oh my God, my life on the wireless. This is the endless <laughs> mental load of life where I feel like nobody gets everything they want from me. And Harry mm. says, over many years, I've found that exercising at the end of the day dissipates the daily micro stresses, especially my regular jogs on the beach and dips into the ocean here at Port Macquarie. You can't worry when focusing on nature and your safety in the sea. Amanda, and I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, how much responsibility do workplaces have to be trying trying to reduce these micro stresses that are, we think, increasing with the global uh, measurements of stress in the workplace? And as Rob said, with the, the new ways of doing work, flattening hierarchies, new technology, new responsibilities. Well, interesting you ask that because organisational psychology says burnout or engagement of the employee in the workplace is actually a relationship between the worker and the employer. So they do have a responsibility. It's not enough for a worker to be resilient, for example. Workplace must provide resources, especially when demands are increased, uh, time off in lieu of overtime and, and so forth. Yes. Yeah. I mean, those are basic things, aren't they, really? <laughs> Uh, Rob, yes. Yeah. Rob, what about on an individual level? I mean, should mm. should we be doing things to push back mm. against these micro stresses? They really sound like they're more of a structural issue. 
I, I think we very much have the ability to control it. I mean, look, the reality is we as a generation have never had more ability to shape what we do and who we do it with, but we give that control away. And the stories that I heard, you do 600 interviews, 90 minute interviews, and you get into people's kitchens <laughs> and um, you, it starts to touch your soul after a while, right? And the stories I heard that were really disheartening were the people that had fallen into completely reactive postures. Um, and I did hear a ton of stories like your dial-in saying, in essence, you know, I'm trying to figure out which balls to drop, not how to exceed today. Um, and so I do think it's critical, right, to be proactive. And you can shape these things when you start looking at them as interactions in the relationship and saying, how do I adapt that? Not how do I dump the connections out of my life, but how do I adapt that? You, it actually opens up a ton of possibilities uh, to improve kind of our well-being. And I, I will say one thing, then it ties to the running on the beach idea. What I could see very consistently with the people I called my 10 percenters, we called our 10 percenters, the people that were really kind of thriving in their work, but also thriving in life on, on a really rare basis of the interviews we did, is that they all maintained at least two and usually three groups they were an authentic part of outside of their profession. Right. And so those groups kind of gave them identity. They also put them in the context of different people that saw problems differently. They created friendships. And the problem for most of us is COVID not only increased stress, right, and the way it's coming at us, but it also with the social distancing pulled us out of those groups that were keeping us human and, and whole to begin with. And so that's really a dual edged sword of why we're experiencing it. But it's very easy to get back in. You know, you just have to be intentional and find ways to kind of create that dimensionality. There's a bunch of little strategies for that. Uh, but I do think it's it's something that people really have to take ownership of. Yeah, you mentioned the, you know, the things that we can let go of. In parenting circles, we talk about juggling all the balls. Some of them are glass and you don't want to drop them. And some right. of them are plastic and it's not that big a deal. <laughs> and you have to work out your priorities. But a lot of us are also wondering how we manage to be juggling so many balls. Where did we get here? Are we the frog right. in the pot, you know, that's gradually right. Overheated. Um, Amanda, perhaps I'll put this to you. I mean, if the problem is so much about the big structural issues like the requirements of work in a capitalist system and the unfair burden on women and marginalised people and those on low incomes, does that suggest that our biggest relief might come from adjusting those structures? Yeah, and look, to Rob's point, we have much more flexibility. Psycholo uh, psychological safety, job crafting um, is where workers, you know, the power of the psychological contract has shifted uh, and was shifting before COVID has shifted. So workers do actually have more power now to shape those structures and to help develop them with the more networked organisations. Again, we've got more power to the worker and the relationship there again is so important. So I, I do think that there's a lot more opportunity. I mean, of course, uh, workplace must be open to this shaping um, concept as well. Yeah, on that a text message uh, from Lisa, a comment on technological changes. She says, it's constant. I work in an office environment. Our systems and processes change every year. There's never a time when we be can become proficient at anything anymore. When will this issue be addressed? All progress is not good. Uh, to finish up with Rob Cross, you write in the book that, you know, one some of our options are to push back against some of the micro stresses that we can engage with and control, tune into the stress that we're causing to others, uh, and also rise above. How useful is that in the scheme of things? I think it's personally the most important. And I think, you know, the comment that just came in on text is really an indicator. These stresses and the way they're coming at us through connections are only going to magnify. I, I just can't see a way 
that that doesn't continue to happen with the advancements of the technologies and putting us in you know contact with each other constantly and instantly. And so that ability to kind of have those anchors in your life, right? And, and again, if I said one thing that I would hope people hold on to, it's to have at least two and usually three groups you're an authentic part of um, outside of your profession and your direct family, right? It's a dimensionality in your life. It can come from any and all walks, right? Book clubs, athletic groups, uh, vegan lifestyle groups. I mean, it came from everywhere <laughs> with these successful people, but um, it is the thing that allows you to do what that, that very first Colin was saying is just let some of it go <laughs> and recognize kind of where the glass balls are and which ones are truly plastic, as you were saying. Um, so I think it's, it's perhaps the most important of the three main strategies that we talk about. Interesting. I reckon people have different views on how much they're able to let go of and how much they can sustain if things keep the way they're going, but it's a fascinating insight Rob Cross, thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you so much. Rob's the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College, co-author with Karen Dillon of a book called The Micro-Stress Effect. Dr. Amanda Ferguson, great to have you with us on Life Matters too. Thank you, Hilary. Amanda's an organisational psychologist and you've been hearing from both of them about some of the big ongoing changes in our workplaces that show no sign of letting up. You're going to meet someone next who works in prisons. He says there are lots of people in there desperately trying to change their lives but having to do it through a culture that they don't understand. He's using art to give them another chance. Attention, passengers. Thank you, Simon. Uh, hi, I'm Jonathan Green, and if you caught the first two seasons of Return Ticket, you may be wondering, where on earth will we go for season three? Return Ticket, we take journeys of the mind. No passport required. Come fly with us. Return Ticket on the ABC Listen app. You might think art is not the best way to re-engage with the economy if you've been disengaged from it. But for Indigenous men and women who've been in jail, it's changing lives because it's a way to connect with culture as well. And with the statistics so out of whack, Indigenous men 15 times more likely than non-Indigenous men to go to prison in Australia, Indigenous women 21 times more likely, projects like this are crucial. For more than a decade, an organisation called The Torch has been using art in this way to connect to culture and the economy. So just how powerful can it be to have people see you in this way? Kent Morris is a Barkindji man and the, co- uh, the founder and CEO of The Torch. Kent, th- thanks so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to be here, Hilary. Thank you. Great to have you in the studio too. Lovely to be able to actually see your faces. Melissa Bell, great to have you here. Thanks for coming in. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Melissa's part of the project too. She's a Gunditjmara Yorta Yorta artist. Womanjika, both of you. Uh, Kent, The Torch runs the Indigenous Arts in Prisons and Community Program, but it's about more than that, isn't it? Tell us about how it's about connection. Yeah, it's a great question. So... In the early days of the program, when I went out to prisons to speak to men and women who had engaged with the program, I wanted to make sure that their voices were heard and that they would design this program. And so I tore up the the PD and the ideas that the Torch had, and I had 18 months to build a pilot program, which really needed to be successful so that it could be ongoing. So I was really critical that right from the word go, it was done the right way. The men and women said to me, we want to learn about what to paint, 
not how to paint. We want to learn about our culture. What are our stories? Can we learn our lingo? I've never seen photos of my grandparents. All these stories around who they were, where they were from, and, and the gaps that were missing in their knowledge. And then, of course, the secondary most important part was how do we connect to an economy? How can we sell these works? We talked about, you know, it's an industry, a viable industry that doesn't discriminate. And how can our art share our stories and help us to work through our, our some of our trauma, provide some healing, but also let's get economically a bit more stable and independent so we can move forward. So what kind of stories did you see coming to the fore when you helped people connect with those, those silences, those holes in their knowledge of their culture? Oh, it's extraordinary. It was absolutely life-changing. And we can't underestimate the power of our culture in, in the rehabilitation process and the way for us to be strong in our identity, which is so critical in this area. So, so many stories around connecting back and that desire to connect back to family and to repair some of the damage that might have been done and to find a way forward that some of the journeys that they travelled wouldn't be travelled by their kids and that they could become, I guess, examples and role models of how things can change. And they were driving this. The men and women were driving this. None of them wanted to be in prison. None of them, none of them wanted the circumstances that had been before them. So they were driving this process to connect back to country. But so importantly, so many of the stories that would then emanate from this process were around family and connection back to family and country. And Kent Morris, your family story is about that too, isn't it? The, the gaps and the silences and the missing bits that you had to fill in and how much things have changed. Tell us uh, in summary about how you found out more about your dad. How long have we got? That's a long story. <laughs> um, Ten minutes. <laughs> but I think, look, I think the critical part of that story is that elders and community members ha have had time-honoured processes for just decades upon decades because of so many of the disconnections and, and um, you know, policies past and present from government that disconnected us from our, our knowledges and our families and, and our history. So what my journey, uh, I think, showed in the end was that our community is very aware of the potential that we have once we know who we are and where we're from. And so this was my journey was something that I shared with the men and women, and we had so many, so many uh, experiences in common. But the program is based around what potential does each person have once they know who they are, where they're from, and what might they do. I never thought I'd be doing what I'm doing today, and I wouldn't be doing it without the support of the community. I was fascinated to read that your father's story involved being kind of removed against his will from the mission and put in institutions. So there's that kind of grounding that so many people had in institutions from such a young age and the shame that people felt and the, the kind of hiding of Indigenous sides of their family. So I can see why that would be so important for people. That's the connection side of things. How do you foster that sense of uh, being able to make a painting and, and sell it? Because I imagine it's not just convincing yourself you can paint the thing, but convincing yourself you can sell it and, and be seen that way. Yeah, these are a couple of wonderful things around what the program does through the Torch program. Is it provides it does provide that opportunity for men and women to share their experiences and stories, but also to face those challenges around how do I feel about sharing that? Do I feel confident to share that? And what does that mean? And once that's done, and at the Confined 14 exhibition, there's 473 artworks this year by 420 artists. So that's 420 First Nations men and women having the courage and conviction and commitment to share their story, which can often be quite uh, confronting. But the desire is always to 
to be heard, to have a voice and, and to share our culture and knowledge and our stories with the broader community. Kent uh, Morris is talking about the exhibitions that are on at the Glen Ira City Council Gallery in Melbourne at the moment. They're part of the Torch Project that Kent's the CEO of that goes into prisons and works with people not just to fill in those gaps, uh, those missing parts of, of their sense of themselves that got taken away when they were disconnected from culture, but also connects them with an art economy that gives them some potential pathways when they come out of prison. Melissa Bell is part of the Torch Project. Melissa, tell us a little bit about what drew you to the project in the first place. Um, how I came about with the Torch Program was um, I was incarcerated in prison in year 2015 and I created work probably year 2016 was my first artwork. And... That's how I became involved with the torch. So I came out of, out of prison, back into community, um, <coughs> sort of lost my way. And, yeah, without the torch being there and me um, getting back in community, connecting back to my people and my artwork to tell my story is a big thing for me. So, yeah. Tell us a little bit about your country, Yorta Yorta country. Um, yeah, I grew up on Yorta Yorta country, Kamragunja down at New South Wales on the border of um, Barma, yeah. And um, so I lived there on, on the river right up to I was like about a teenager, moved to Melbourne, yeah, so lived on the river, so I do a lot of paintings where I come from, yeah, so I connect right back. So that's the beautiful birds and the beautiful trees of the river and just the, the sounds and the motion of the water. It's gorgeous, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So I do a lot of my totem, of the long-necked turtle, um, where that represents our heritage and our land. So that's very connected because that represents us. So you'll see in a lot of my paintings, long-necked turtles, and I'll do a lot of um, Dreamtime Murray River I love doing. Yeah. So was it scary, Melissa, kind of putting your art out there and being part of this project? Um, at first it was, but then after a couple of um, doing confine at the Torch Program with the exhibition, it got my confidence right up. Um, as well, I work at the Torch Program. I do two days a week, well as doing my art. Um, have a studio at Pentridge. So, which is good. That yeah. must be a bit weird, though. So, uh, former prison and now you're making art in it. Yeah, well, I've been out of prison over going on four years, so I changed my whole life around. And without the torch, I don't think I could have had done it. So, yeah, it's been such a journey. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I'm, you know, the, the art world is kind of a particular world, isn't it? Is it? Uh, what's it like being in that world and having people go, oh, you're an artist, not you were in prison, say? Oh, it's amazing because I don't get recognised as being in prison. I'm getting recognised as an Aboriginal artist, so which is amazing for me and it makes me just want to go further. It does, yeah. What's next for you, do you reckon? Oh, I just want to go big. So I'll get a lot of licensing commissions, so just makes me want to work harder. Yep. Yeah, I'll be buying Melissa Bell T-shirts any day now. I can't oh, wait. never know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see those Murray River yeah. pictures. We're speaking with Kent Morris, who's the CEO of The Torch, and Melissa Bell, who's an artist and works with the program as well. And Kent, The Torch runs three annual exhibitions. This is the 14th confined exhibition, I understand, that's on now. How much has it changed over the years and grown? 
Oh, look, I'd say it's undergrown slightly. The, the first exhibition I put on had 49 artists and uh, 62 artworks. We're now at 473 artworks and 420 artists. So participation in the program grows exponentially every year, and as does the artworks represented in the exhibition. And again, this is just a testament to the ambition and drive of the men and women in the program and their voices being heard to build this program. And we can make impacts in these really difficult spaces, particularly around Indigenous carceration, but it's got to be driven by those that are experiencing it and living through that process. So of our 23 now staff, there used to be 1.5 of us, there's now 23 (laughs) of us. (laughs) 13 of those staff are First Nations um, men and women and mostly creatives who deliver the program and and manage the program and the organisation. And six of the staff are actually men and women who've come through the program, Mel being one. And we have five others who are going back into the prisons or into community to provide those role models and those mentor uh, roles, but also working back at the torch with all of our online sales and licensing and finance and operations. So it's a, a program built and conceived right from the word go of, with the knowledges embedded in our communities, elders and men and women, and then taking forward those mechanisms to provide an organisation that in some time may be completely run by men and women in the program. Well, and as you said before, these are some of the most silenced people in Australia. You you hardly ever hear the voices of men and women in prison. When you're running an organisation that's about um, connection and keeping people connected to culture and it's grown so much, how do you uh, make sure it can be an ongoing thing that you can stay connected to people when they come out? And look, it is challenging, and of course, the providing the the program and the service at the same level we might have done five or six years ago, when the numbers were probably half what we have. It, it's always a a call out for support, and I think this is another fantastic idea around the program. Is it's a big issue, Indigenous incarceration. It's a big issue across the country. It's been a big issue for decades and decades. First Nations people, we make up less than 3% of the general population. So we need everybody working together. And one of the things this program does in the confined exhibition is it brings the community together broadly and everyone becomes part of the solution to the problem. And if we work together as a broader community, led by First Nations knowledges and philosophies and lived experiences, we can make significant change, and we're doing it right now. Well, and you and Melissa are positive people. I can kind of feel the passion radiating off you in waves for this project, which is making such a big difference to people. But I also read about the Europe Justice Commission in Victoria this week, just this week, hearing how appallingly the bail laws in that state have affected Indigenous men and women, and so many people being on remand, never serving time under a sentence, but spending time in jail. Um, um, changes afoot there, but uh, is it? Uh, are you seeing change more broadly happen, Kent, in the structures that are incarcerating Indigenous men and women? I think we just have to be straight up and direct here and say no, and we are seeing the numbers still increasing. The bail law reforms are well overdue, and that has been an absolute, you know, significant what can I problem. say on radio? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a significant problem, and particularly for you know our community, and so that also impacts on the numbers connecting to our program. But again. We never say no to someone who wants to make change at that point in time. And this has become challenging and we need greater support, not only from government, but from the philanthropic sector. We work as hard as we can and our wonderful board and all of the people associated with us are doing their best to raise the resources to resolve this problem. But it's never quite enough due to the fact that so many men and women want to change their lives, but realistically... 
we should be the 3% in the prison population, not the 30% in the prison population. And this is a very core structural issue around how this nation sees itself and what it believes is fair and reasonable. Well, if you want to get in touch with The Torch, they've got a big shiny website. You can connect, contact them very easily if you've got money to send their way. Uh, big thank you to both of you, Noongaj and T, coming in today to the studio, Kent Morris and Melissa Bell. Thanks for your time. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Kent Morris is the CEO and founder of The Torch. Melissa Bell is an artist involved with the program and she works with The Torch too. And the exhibitions can find 14 and in The Torch Lighter on now until the 5th of June at the Glen Ira City Council Gallery in Melbourne. Up next, that ringing, that buzzing, that in your ears that drives you nuts and some promising new directions on the treatment of tinnitus. Life Matters on ABCRN. ABC Listen, Rampaging Royce Laven and HG Nelson. I note that some people don't use logbooks anymore. What? Yeah. They don't know cos, yeah, sine, cosine, cosine, cotan. They're all great. Lodging on the blind side. Why don't they do it? I don't know. <laughs> I think Royal Commission. <laughs> what happened to the logbook? I love that. <laughs> I still open the love. Could we get Volandis to drag the logbook? Kicking and screaming back, back into our universities. Podcast available now on the ABC Listen app. It's annoying, it's distracting, and at its worst, it can make life really difficult. I'm talking about tinnitus, a ringing or pulsing sensation in your ears that afflicts a lot of people. It's like having a mosquito in your head for hours at a time, I find. I used to only get it after standing too near the Marshall Stacks at rock gigs. Now it's much more often. Dr. Raj Shekhawat is a professor of audiology at Flinders University, and he and his team are researching potential treatments for tinnitus. Uh, Dr. Shekhawat, welcome. Thank you so much, Hilary. Thank you for having us. It's a great pleasure because I know this is something that that, uh, a lot of people have to deal with. And it might surprise a lot of our listeners to learn that tinnitus occurs in the brain and not in the ears. Can you explain a bit about its physiology for us? Yes, absolutely. So tinnitus is a very prevalent condition, as you mentioned. Uh, To give some context, almost one in six Australians suffers from it. So if you look around, it's a very common condition. A lot of our friends and loved ones may have this as well. Um, As far as the physiology of tinnitus is concerned, um, our hearing system um, can be divided into our outer ear, which is a pinna, which is attached to our head, which we all can touch and feel. And then there's a little canal which goes uh, attached to it and goes inside our head. And then it leads to this um, eardrum, which we call as tympanic membrane. And then attached to that is a part of middle ear where we have got three small bones. And then they connect to our inner ear, which is a very small, a shell-shaped sort of an, a structure called cochlea, which is the size of a thumb. And that cochlea has got thousands of hair cells. And what happens is when a sound is created or the vibration sort of uh, impinges on the eardrum, it sort of moves that, bow, that bony structure and then it results into the movement in the fluid in that cochlea. And as a result of that, those thousands of hair cells, they they start moving as well. And what they do is they convert the vibrational energy of sound into electrical impulses. And those electrical impulses are then carried all the way to the brain using our auditory nerve. So how does a a hearing loss result in that tinnitus, that sensation of a, a sound happening in your ears? 
what I explained to you is how we normally hear sounds, right? But now there are various theories which explain how tinnitus occurs and we don't have a universally accepted sort of a framework by everyone. But one of them, which is sort of very closely aligned uh, in clinical sector is what I'm going to explain to you. So in our cochlea, all the hair cells are organized like piano keys, right from low frequencies to mid frequencies to, to high frequencies. And when we have some form of a hearing damage, it's like a part of those hair cells get damaged at a certain frequency. And as a result of then that, they stopped responding to those frequencies. And the adjoining hair cells, they try and over-represent the damaged one. And as a result of that, an error signal is created in the brain, which brain perceives it as tinnitus. So that's why it's called a constant, annoying, ringing, buzzing, hissing sound in the absence of a true external source. Oh, wow. So your poor little ear is trying to do its best to hear the full range of frequencies and manufacturing the ones that aren't there. Absolutely. And that's why tinnitus is not only a problem of a year, it's basically the brain's involvement as well. I mean, many decades back, people used to think, oh, tinnitus is just a problem of hearing or the ear related problem. But actually, it's the brain. Brain is the main hub where the processing of all the sounds happen. And that is why I think it's important to look into various innovative ways in which we can offer a holistic management option for this condition. Well, yes, let's look at some of the theories around uh, what might uh, cause tinnitus too, because we've heard about the link with hearing loss from you, Dr. Raj Shakawat. Uh, some recent news articles have linked tinnitus with the COVID vaccine. Is there anything in that? Yeah, now that's a that's a very interesting question. Uh, last year, one of um, uh, our uh, research students conducted a, a global survey where we are trying to look into the impact of COVID nineteen on on people's tinnitus perception, and we had uh, hundreds of responders from all over the world. And interestingly, we found that there were some anecdotes of a um, few handful of people saying that they. Uh, got their tinnitus after receiving the vaccination. Having said that, I must very clearly and um, uh, emphasize here that there is no causation between tinnitus and COVID-19 vaccination, but we have received some anecdotes where some people have started experiencing it after receiving the vaccination. So it could be a combination of several things. Yes, and I understand the Centres for Disease Control had a look at it in the States as well and, and found no odd clusters of tinnitus among the huge numbers of people who received a vaccination, though it'd be uh, interesting to see if research uncovers anything in the future. What about this suggestion that some menopause experts make that tinnitus is a symptom of low oestrogen? Do we know enough about that yet to make a conclusion? Now, once again, it's it's very hard to give a conclusion statement over there that menopause and low estrogen are directly linked to generation of tinnitus. However, we need to look at this very holistically. As I said, hearing loss is one of the major factors which is linked with tinnitus. Majority of the people who have some form of tinnitus, they will also have some form of a hearing damage, whether it's captured by a classical hearing assessment or not. So now, if we look at um, uh, the women who are experiencing menopause, sometimes it, you know, it's of course, as your age progresses, the prevalence of hearing loss uh, um, goes up as well. The moment we enter the fifth decade of our life, our hearing tends to start deteriorating as well. And then combination of other factors related to noise exposure, stress and other factors could be 
cumulative reasons uh, attached to the tinnitus. So are there other factors that make you more or less likely to get tinnitus, whether you're a man or a woman or uh, age we've heard is one, or, or work in particular areas, Raj? Absolutely, absolutely. I think noise exposure is a very big factor here. I mean, these days, we, of course, use sound as a source of entertainment. Um, you know, we listen to a lot of music. I love music myself. Um, a nice night out, going to pubs, going for a nice dance in a night out, or going to attending lots of concerts. Now, it's important to remember the thousands of hair cells which I mentioned in the cochlea, they are very, very, very susceptible to noise-induced damage. And then once that damage occur, it's a permanent damage. There's no way you can revert that damage. So next time we are blasting our ears with those ear pods while listening to the music, while commuting on a bus or a train, um, then we should just be mindful of that factor as well, that it listening, constant listening to it for a longer period of time can result into permanent damage to our hearing as well. Yep, I am regretting that Madhani concert as we speak with <laughs> Dr. Raj Shekhawat, who's a professor of audiology at Flinders University, and he's researching potential treatments for tinnitus, which will be extremely welcome to a huge segment of the Australian population. I mean, once you have tinnitus, Raj, do you have it forever? Oh, well, Hillary, the thing is, most of the people will experience tinnitus at some stage in their life. But the good news is, for a lot of those people, it disappears on its own or it's not a problem at all, which is fantastic news. However, for one in 10 of those people, it lingers on and it starts interfering in their, say, ability to pay attention, uh, hearing, uh, ability to sleep, concentrate, and that's when it becomes a bit of a problem. So for some people, it lingers on and it can become a problem where it requires some sort of a management for sure. Well, and you know, the online world is rife with suggestions, you know, put a fan on at night if you're trying to go to sleep, have the white noise machine or the rainforest sounds. But I mean, I was intrigued by what you said about sometimes it just goes away. What happens there? Does the rest of your ear manage to compensate for the lost frequencies? So once again, um, as I said, different people respond very differently uh, to tinnitus, as well as people have different physiological response to tinnitus as well. Um, for, For those people where it becomes a problem are those where usually, like for example, in our brain, there are different areas. Uh, one area is which processes sound, which analyzes sounds, right? But then there's another area where which is responsible for attaching meaning or emotions to those sounds. Like, uh, like in our day-to-day life, the moment we hear an ambulance siren, it evokes different emotional response in our in, in our minds. Uh, if we hear a little baby crying, that evokes very different res- response. Uh, on contrary to that, if we listen to a very soothing symphony, it just makes us feel absolutely calm and composed. Or we all may have our favorite music as well, right? So sound has strong potential to evoke emotions. And for those people who find tinnitus really bothersome, usually in their cases, it's their limbic system or the emotional system gets really involved and associated with the sound perception. And that's when it becomes a real problem. Because um, it's easy for someone to say, hey, just stop paying attention. But they just can't do that because it's like telling somebody, don't imagine about a big red elephant. And then the first thing we do is we think about a big red elephant. So in because the, the limbic system or the emotional response is so strongly tied up with the perception of sound, we need to address that. 
So before we talk about the physiological approaches to treatment, is that heartening in a sense, Raj, because it means that uh, perhaps things like cognitive behavioural therapy might help you deal with the stress side of your responses to your tinnitus? Absolutely. There are various, I mean, I should again uh, emphasize on this uh, factor that although we don't have a cure for tinnitus, there are various management options which are available and different management options can help different different people. So, for example, somebody uh, who has a hearing loss and tinnitus might respond really, really well to, let's say, um, a hearing aid. Or which will not only improve communication, but also uh, help in their tinnitus. Other people may, may, might respond really well to some form of sound enrichment, like the examples you gave about uh, putting a fan on or putting a white noise on or putting some sort of a background music on. And, and then some people, when we are using cognitive behavioral therapy, it is not trying to target on the tinnitus signal or tinnitus perception in itself, it's trying to target the emotional response to that tinnitus signal. So CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy is definitely one option. There are several other novel research tools which are available as well. For example, one of the research we are doing is around looking into how we can non-invasively stimulate various parts of the human brain, especially the one which processes sound and the one which is attached with evoking emotional responses and seeing how that can in turn address or directly have an impact on tinnitus signal per se. So non-invasively, you're not putting electrodes in. How, How do you do that stimulation? We use very tiny electrodes and we put those electrodes on the skull outside on the head basically trying to target a certain area and then we deliver mild stimulation to those to those areas and we try and record not only the underlying physiological activity of the brain, but also trying to capture people's perception as well, that how they are feeling about their tinnitus before, during or after the stimulation. And is it too soon to say how promising this research is? Well, um, I'm, all I can say is I'm definitely optimistic about it for sure. Um, Hillary, uh, um, we have done series of pilot studies and we have obtained some really promising results. Uh, one thing is for sure that uh, it's it'll be challenging to find a one-size-fits-all solution for everybody. Because of the heterogeneous nature of tinnitus, it'll be almost impossible to find one cure or one solution which might just help everybody. Uh, but there are definitely, for example, anywhere between 25 to as high as 70, 75% of the people who uh, who have been enrolled in series of various trials who experience um, um, almost immediate suppression of their tinnitus loudness or annoyance after undergoing this stimulation. So what we are now trying to do is we are trying to run a massive clinical trial, a longitudinal trial to investigate it a bit further. And we are also trying to see how we could make this research more inclusive and accessible to people sitting in all parts of Australia and globally for that matter. Grants committees, if you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) To give you an example, for the conventional brain stimulation, uh, right now we are running a trial in Adelaide at Flinders University. So the participants need to be here physically to be part of that trial, right? 
I remember appearing on various TV and radio interviews and my inbox getting flooded with hundreds of people from all over Australia and globally saying that, you know what, we want to be part of that trial as well and what can we do? And I can imagine it can be very cost uh, uh, cost burdening for people to fly, say, a remote part of Perth or Victoria or New South Wales to come fly to Adelaide, right? So by we are trying to take a step forward where we are collaborating with a company in New York called Satarix Medical and they have... In, uh, uh, they have created this device which can be shipped to people and we can remotely capture their data and, and administer that stimulation to those people. And as we speak, in literally two weeks' time, we will be commencing that trial once again in, in, in South Australia. One of my PhD students, uh, Jack Stevenson, is, is doing that work. Um, and we are really hopeful that by making the research more inclusive to everybody, uh, by looking into ways in which we can reach out to as many people as possible, especially to those who can get some benefit out of it, it will be phenomenal for the community. That sounds like a huge study. Raj, just before we let you go, I wanted to ask you about a, a tinnitus hack, so-called, that's been doing the rounds on social media. So it suggests that you, you put your hands over your ears with your fingers pointing to the back of your head and you, you rest your middle and pointer fingers on top of each other and snap them onto your skull to make a kind of drumming noise about 40 or 50 times. What's going on there? You, is that likely to provide some relief for people? Um, Hillary, now I, I really can't address uh, to this hack, but having said that, if if I put my uh, my analytical thinking hat on, I would like to think that what they are trying to do with this hack is they are trying to create that sound stimulation, which I'm doing right now. So you constantly trying to do that stimulation for, you said, 40, 50 times. And then what happens is it's it potentially the sound is acting as a source of some form of masker. So, so um, will that result into cure for tinnitus? Probably not. Will it result into lasting suppression of tinnitus? Probably not. Will it let somebody think that maybe for temporarily my tinnitus has gone down? Yes, because then external stimulation, which is which which is being created, almost trying to compete with the existing perception of the sound, and that's how it may be think thought of as a potential sort of relief for tinnitus for temporarily. Well, I think a few of us, if we could uh, use something that was on our body already, like our hands, instead of going f getting fitted for a hearing aid and get rid of it for five minutes at a time, that would be quite handy. Raj, it's been fascinating talking with you today. Thanks so much for illuminating tinnitus a little for us. My pleasure, Hilary. And um, if anybody's interested to know more about tinnitus, I would advise them to go to authentic sources rather than just going randomly onto internet and getting alarmed by the information you see there. Yes, indeed. Dr. Raj Sakhawat, Professor of Audiology at Flinders University. Thanks so much for speaking with us today. And you're listening with varying degrees of ease to Life Matters. Some interesting ideas for dealing with tinnitus coming through on the text line as well after that. Kim says, my tinnitus was so bad it interfered with my hearing test. Made me think I could hear a beep when there wasn't one. The good news is once I got some hearing aids, the tinnitus left the head. As soon as I put my aids on in the morning, tinnitus goes, says Kim. Chris in Eastlakes, I deal with tinnitus by really listening to the real sounds around me or focusing strongly on some activity, and then it falls into the background unnoticed. And this is an interesting approach from Greg in Long Beach in New South Wales. I have tinnitus all the time. It started in my early 30s, probably damaged from working in a constant temperature room for my PhD. And Greg says, at first, I didn't think I could live with it. Now I've learnt to tune it out. When I do notice it, I 
I treat it like an old friend. I greet it, make it welcome, stay with it for a while, converse, and then farewell it until we hear from each other again usually the next day. That's a fascinating idea, Greg. Micro-stresses, just to kind of follow that theme through, annoying things that add up and uh, can really be a problem for us. Bernie in Williamstown says, wow, this is hitting very close to home, this discussion. The bombardment of constant communications, all of which are requests for attention, make my head and chest feel stretched daily. He says, Jenny O'Dell wrote a great book on this issue, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Definitely worth a read, says Bernie, if you're feeling you're on call to work 24-7 with agile or work-from-home arrangements despite EBA agreements of 38-hour weeks. That's it for Life Matters for the moment. But what comes to mind when I say the name Paul Kelly? The Coloured Girls, the Messengers, the Boon Companions, his solo work, his collaborations, his work spotlighting the work of Indigenous artists. Well, the great stayer of Australian music has a new album and a new project, both involving poetry. He'll tell us why poetry is on his mind in recent years and what first made him fall in love with it. That's Paul Kelly on the next edition of Life Matters. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.